I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to You're On Mute, a new podcast series conceived by BBI, the UK's first black business institute, an organization which aims to boost prospects for underprivileged black entrepreneurs by promoting equivalent access to the UK's funding structures and essential business networks. I'm your host, entrepreneur and business mentor, Bianca Miller-Cole. And over the next 12 weeks, myself and my fellow hosts, June Sarpong and Lord Michael Hastings, will be interviewing an incredible lineup of leaders, icons and changemakers to ascertain how they balance the importance of commercial performance versus societal impact. As we all know, with great power comes huge responsibility. And this series looks at how those in positions of influence can use their status as a force for good. Our time together is broken down into three sections with the guests sharing their favorite pieces of music or soundtrack representing a memorable stage of their life. Joining me today is Anison Lonis, president of Net-A-Porter, Mr. Porter and the Outnet discussing social justice, why fashion could hold the key to a cultural shift. Welcome, Alison. Thank you so much, Bianca. So we break our podcast down into three key sections, and each one has a favorite song that starts the section. So yours is Run DMC. It's like that. Can you tell me why you've chosen this song? Yes, and um, I actually didn't follow instructions and gave you two, so I'm going to have my second <laughs> one. I'd say I was really torn. Um, it was Run DMC, It's Like That, or Black Box, Black Strike Box. It Up, mm-hmm. Strike It Up, and I think Run DMC, I grew up in New York and um, was like, very lucky to be living around in New York and a young person when the whole hip hop movement uh, took off. And I remember the very first time hearing Run DMC and just being, I guess, enraptured is the best way to describe it and became somewhat of a, um, a low level groupie um, thereafter. And I remember going to LA and going to this sneaker store uh, called Sporty LA, which was like the place to get the best trainers. I mean, the most incredible thing. And I remember looking around and all of a sudden I saw Run DMC, and, <laughs> which was forever. I remember exactly where I was in the store, which such a big, um, big highlight. And I guess where that was a harbinger was just around this idea of entertainment and fashion coming together. Black Box Strike It Up for me, whenever I hear that song, I think of dancing. And I think of being in my late teens, being also at university, and just that rush at a party to the dance floor. And it just evokes amazing, great times um, and gives me a bit of an adrenaline rush. I love those two reasons. And and meeting Run DMC, I love that. Well, let's um, I wish I wish I'd met Run DMC. The child, oh, you the just saw. Is, oh, I was like peeking behind a corner with my <laughs> mouth open. So I'd love to tell you I was cool enough to have met them, but no, sadly not. Well, that works for me. So Alison, becoming president of Net-a-Porter, Mr. Porter and the Outnet 
is a deeply impressive achievement, but I'm keen to learn a little bit about the young Alison. So let's start from the very beginning. Tell us a little bit about mom, dad, and family life. I grew up in New York City um, with my parents and a a younger sister. Um, Both of my parents were working. My dad was working always in the cosmetics and fragrance business, which I thought was just about the most glamorous thing that you could do. Um, For a period of time, um, he was running the Yves Saint Laurent fragrance business in, in the U.S., and he'd get to go to Paris and all these things. And I remember seeing photos and I remember he used to bring me back his sort of um, paraphernalia he'd get on a plane, you know, like back in the days of glamorous air travel, he'd bring me like the menu and things, which I just thought was so incredibly exciting. Um, my mom had been a school teacher and she gave up teaching um, when I was born. And then I think when I was probably around six years old, um, we were, um, spending summer outside of New York City. And, you know, I was at camp or doing various activities and she wasn't doing anything. And she ran into, and she was, I think probably a bit bored. And she ran into a guy that she'd gone to high school with who had started an advertising agency. And he said, well, why don't you come and do some stuff for me? And they're very early clients. They had Cuisinart, I remember, and I don't remember, I remember her telling me. They had Cuisinart and they had Ralph Lauren, which at that point was sort of a relatively new brand um and she started doing some work for him and there in so doing really stepped into what would become a phenomenally phenomenal career in advertising um and I think for me that really made such a big impression I think really the two of them working because I was interested in what they did um I was curious and I guess my dad's job sparked in me this um interest in beauty, this interest in travel and going faraway places and what that might look like and the exoticism surrounding that. And for my mom, I think it was just, she was really just such a great role model in proving that um, being a mom and having a family and, uh, and working were, you know, are not mutually exclusive. I love that. And I I love how they have kind of impacted uh, your journey. But did your schooling help you develop any particular passions for any particular subjects or sports? Absolutely. So I went to a small girls school. I think there were about 40 girls per year. So really small um, in New York City. I went there for 12 years Um, and it was formative in a number of ways. Um, One, we had a very uh, strict uniform policy. And why that was formative beyond maybe the obvious thing, reason is I think, and it only occurred to me actually somewhat recently that one of the many reasons why I love fashion so much is, you know, one, I had a stylish mother who also loved fashion and I think through osmosis and some of the experiences that we had, but also I have these memories of before we had a sports day or a field day, we called it, and being able to wear what you'd like, lying in bed and thinking, gosh, what am I gonna wear? I mean, not that I had a vast wardrobe of any kind, but just thinking, <laughs> what am I going to wear? What am I going to wear? And I think what I realized is that fashion for me was always this sense, um, surrounding it was a sense of freedom and self-expression and choice, and therefore incredibly exciting. Anyway, so I went to this, this girl's school. Um, I would love to tell you I was great at sports. I was fine, and maybe that's being generous. Um, the thing I really wanted to be able to do well was gymnastics, and I was a complete disaster. And I remember my best friend um, encouraging me to try out for gymnastics club, which to this day was, you know, now it's humorous. I think at the time it was just deeply shaming. Um, so I turned my sights to dance 
So I did quite a lot of dance, you know, jazz and modern dance. I was very interested in art, studio art. Um, I absolutely loved. And in my final year of school, um, we had an opportunity to take art history, which I had always dreamt of doing. Um, I had this really great uh, tradition that, that my dad initiated where my school finished early every Friday. So every Friday in the afternoon, I would, or most Fridays, I would meet him in his office when I was old enough to go on the bus by myself. And then I'd meet him at his office. We would have lunch together and then he would take me to a museum. And, you know, I think his love of art and painting was just so infectious. And then that, um, the second I could take art history, I did. And I lapped it up. And that actually then informed what I was later to study at university. And I think beyond the sort of uniform and the art history and studying language, um, the other thing that I really credit my school for is, you know, this idea of um, female empowerment was ingrained in me really, really early on. And throughout my 12 years at the school, uh, we had a really remarkable headmistress. Um, who used to sit at a podium. And I remember she always wore these pumps. Maybe they were like Ferragamo shoes, I don't know. And she would click her heels together, not in a um, Wizard of Oz way, but that was just her <laughs> sort of habit. And then she'd stand up there and she'd give us, you know, we'd do assembly and she'd give us the you know, updates of the week. But then there was always something around girls, what girls could do. And I remember her saying, you know, one day there'll be a woman for president. One day, you know, girls can do anything. Girls can do anything. And of course, as a young woman, a girl, you sort of, you hear it and maybe just kind of flies over your head. But actually, I remember then, you know, going to studying in a co-ed environment and going to university and other um, friends who maybe being in, in single sex education, finding that a little bit intimidating and maybe women were less inclined to put their hand up or be vocal. And, and I really credit her. And years later, I remember, you know, writing to her about it and just saying, you know, what, how amazing that whole experience had been almost without knowing. And it's something I've just never taken for granted. So from a UK perspective, famous TV shows always make higher education in the States look like a lot of fun. Was that your experience? <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, it's not even just the UK. I think the US can make it look really fun too. I mean, they all can make it look really fun. Was it my experience? I would say kind of. Was it fun? Yeah, you're young, you live in New York City, you do school trips to great museums, you know, you learn about Egyptology at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Amazing, you know, what a great thing to be able to do. Um, I really feel so blessed to have had a super education. It was hard work. And mm -hmm. I also think, again, going to a small girls' school is very different from the romantic notion of these high schools with the lockers and the boys and the thing, which I always dreamt about, you know. Um, and in fact, when it came time to look at, you know, where to go to university, I was adamant to not go to university in a super urban setting because I wanted that sense of like a campus and mm -hmm. fields and maybe a football game and all the things. So I definitely bought into that um, romance as well, though I didn't experience that at a, at a high school level. So while studying, I, I assume you went on to study fashion. Is that a fair assumption? It is. Well, it would be, but I didn't. Okay. Um, and here's why. And I, you know, I went on to study art history. Um, okay. And, um, you know, as I said, I sort of caught that bug uh, early on. I was able to take it my last year at high school and studied art history. Um, 
which really covered everything, um, a pretty wide gamut from sort of ancient um, Chinese art, European contemporary. Um, the focus was really on 19th century, late 19th century France, which ended up being my focus. Um, but I lived in Italy during university and studied amazing pre-Renaissance and Renaissance pieces um, and loved it. And when I graduated uh, from university, I always thought, oh, I'd work in the art world. Um, but at the time, actually the art market was not in a great way. And so there really were no jobs. And I thought, okay, well, art will forever remain a passion um, and an extracurricular hobby if it doesn't remain, you know, if it's not my career. Around fashion, I really was a very, a very late bloomer in terms mm -hmm. of decide, you know, understanding that this was an industry that I could work in and that I would love to work in. Um, which with hindsight feels so weird, just because as I said, you know, I, here was the girl that would lie in bed thinking about what to wear on sports day. Um, you know, I remember even with my uniform, accessorizing it and starting like micro trends, you know, where, you know, wearing your dad's sweater or an oversized sweater and, you know, really dodgy wearing like leg warmers <laughs> over, your over your tights, you know, wearing like big costume jewelry, plastic earrings to try and zhuzh up you know, a particular look. And, you know, when I graduated from high school, went to university and, you know, a lot of my friends went on to office-based jobs. I worked on a shop floor. I worked for Ralph Lauren, um, which was phenomenal. I mean, I learned how to do visual merchandising. I learned how to work the till, how to handle, you know, deliveries, stock take, mm -hmm. um, working with customer. And I absolutely loved it. But curiously, it just didn't occur to me that, within that was something I could actually do for work. I see. So after graduating, tell me about your first job and any role models you had that influenced your choices. You know, when I was in college, when I was at university, I, um, you know, I was so steeped in art history. I really felt this great appreciation for what I was doing there. And then I will confess to probably not being as pre-professionally minded as, as I might've been, let's call it different times. Um, <laughs> and, um, all I knew when I graduated is that what I wanted was a job that would balance out um, in equal parts, creativity and business. And that's really a theme that has followed, you know, followed me or a theme that I've been guided by throughout my, my whole career. Um, I remember interviewing and looking at diff all different industries, but I ended up working in advertising, um, having you know, been influenced by my mom and my parents really didn't put any pressure on me in terms of joining. I mean, they put pressure on me to find a job, yes, but not in terms of working in their specific industries. But what I loved is I remember always going to my mom's office and going into particularly the art director's offices or by their desks and seeing just these storyboards and lots of magic markers um, and then seeing a campaign come to life and just being struck by how cool is this that actually you're using you know, creative means to meet a commercial end and how that would be phenomenal. So my first job was working at Saatchi and Saatchi. Um, I was working on General Mills, the, um, the breakfast cereal accounts. I've, I don't think I've eaten cereal since because- um, <laughs> Are you the cheap taster? <laughs> well, you know what happened is that basically I got there and I was, it really was like professional boot camp because I had never you know, run a meeting. I hadn't done a budget. So I was sort of thrown in with this very terrific and smart group of people on the account management side. Um, but I didn't know what I was doing. And so I'd find it, you know, so I had to learn really fast. And I just remember late nights with sort of my hair in a bun, you know, pencil on my ear and just eating cereal for dinner um, night after night after night, which explains why I don't think I've eaten cereal since. 
So while it was a great education and I learned a huge amount in terms of client service, presentation, organization, budgets, et cetera, um, this sort of fantasy I'd had of the sort of convergence between the business and the creative, what I experienced probably also because I was so junior is that they were very separate. And I found myself constantly gravitating towards the people with the magic markers, um, but that wasn't the side of the business that, that I was on. So Saatchi and Saatchi is, is a big deal in the UK. How important was it as an agency in the USA at the time? And did you get to meet the founders? It was hugely important at the time. I remember vividly, you know, we had this incredible, the bulk of an office building down on Hudson Street in Manhattan, um, some really strong accounts, General Mills, Johnson & Johnson. Um, I never had the opportunity to, to meet the founders. Um, I did work with a really very smart um, and collegial group of people. And I think in a way that also was a lesson because I remember joining this team that was very close knit and they used to, in addition to working on accounts together, they also used to socialize a lot. And which I always found really surprising because I never knew that could happen at work. And I think from that, I also took away the fact that it doesn't mean you have to you know, completely stitch your social life to your work social life, but actually this idea that having a sense of humor, really getting on with the people you work with, having complementary skills is a really terrific you know, recipe for success. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you spend so much of your time at work. You need to like, well, you don't need to like, it would help. Your next track is Mad World Remake by Gary Jules. What memories does this song conjure? So Mad World was actually a song from the 80s, I believe, by Tears for Fears that I remember loving, uh, really, really loving. Um, and it was remade by Gary Jules um, as part of, I think it was on the soundtrack for Donnie Darko, which actually I've mm -hmm. never seen, but, um, but it was the soundtrack um, to that film. And I remember hearing it and loving it. And when I first met my husband, um, I remember hearing it somewhere with him and he was also talking about how much he loved it. And I just remember this specific moment and it was just, it just reminds me of our early days of meeting and being together and sort of feeling um, really from the onset, a very, um, a very strong connection. And I just, I love it. And to this day, when I hear it, it makes me just feel a little bit emotional. Oh, I love that. That is a great reason for that track. <laughs> okay. So at this point, you're now working for one of the globe's most effective advertising agencies, but instead of growing your career there, you decide to leave. Why? I decided to leave um, because I felt that though I had learned a lot and I was really appreciative of that, um, I wanted to be doing something a little more creative. And it just felt the account management side and the skills required to, to um, be successful in that arena were very important. I also just felt like something was missing, like my detachment from a creative product of, of sorts. Um, so from Saatchi, I went on to work for Hachette Filipaki magazines, um, who at the time had, if I'm not mistaken, about 33 or so different magazines, Elle, Elle Decor, Premier Magazine. Um, they had also just launched in a very forward-thinking way, a sort of contract publishing unit where they would develop magazines for advertisers. So um, Aveda had a magazine, I think um, NBC Networks had a magazine. Marlboro had a magazine, which really in some ways, I guess sort of dates that experience. Um, John F. Kennedy Jr. launched his magazine. Um, 
with uh, with Hachette as well, which probably was one of the highlights of being there, seeing him in the elevator in, in the morning, which was incredible. But I worked there working in communications. So I did both corporate communications as well as communications for the magazine titles. And so what my job and the department's job really was, was to pull out um, interest articles of interest, interesting um, journalists, interesting pieces we had written and try and get press for them, whether that be on television news, whether that be in national news, um, daily magazines, uh, et cetera. And it was great because again, I was closer to um, an, the idea, the creative product. And it was this idea of how do you creatively pitch something? How do you sell it? And so I really there learned uh, how to pitch. I also got to do interesting things like working with advertisers on events. And I remember my first business trip there and going to Scottsdale, Arizona um, with a woman that I was working with who was definitely more seasoned than I was. And she sort of showed me the rope of how do you pull off an advertiser event and make sure all the you know, constituents are, are happy and what does success look like and how do you speak to editors of national newspapers versus magazine editors, et cetera. So that was, um, it was a great experience. At the time, also, another sort of forward-thinking move is Hachette was starting to look at um, chat. And I remember they had these AOL, I mean, this is really dating it, they were hosting AOL chat rooms and getting sort of editors and things to come in. And so they were really at the forefront of some interesting um, advances that today we really, we take for granted. But what I loved about it is I was working across a myriad of titles, no two days were the same, it was very interactive and I was learning a lot along the way. So building on your career, your next move is a big one involving a filmmaker. Please share that with the listeners for me. So I'd been at Hachette for a number of years. Um, one of the magazines I had worked on was Premiere, which is a movie magazine. And the woman who was the editor-in-chief of Premiere was hired by Disney uh, to open up a motion picture office. And um, what I hadn't shared with anyone at the time is I loved the idea of film. I mean, as we gleaming from this conversation, you know, I didn't, despite being a planner and a very organized person, I had no like crystal clear career plan, right? <laughs> so I was like, I mean, you know, I love fashion in the background, didn't realize I could work in fashion necessarily, you know, was interested in creative business, tried advertising, but again, extracurricularly, I was really interested in the film business and I had been in my own free time working for a production company, um, writing what was called coverage. So if you work in development or in film, you're sent stacks and stacks and stacks of, of screenplays, um, which clearly one person would be very hard to get through and keep your day job. So you have people around you who write what's called coverage, which is essentially almost like the crib notes on, right. on a script. Here's the mm -hmm. gist, we recommend you read it, we recommend you don't, here's the synopsis, blah, blah. Um, so this production company, I've been doing this on the side and I felt so lucky that they were letting me do this. Anyway, little did I know that most people get paid to do this, <laughs> this work. I was doing it for free and felt unbelievably privileged. Anyway, um, so the, the, um, the editor of Premiere was hired to open a development office in New York. And when I heard this for Disney, um, I jumped up and put myself forward. And I remember so vividly um, the day I had to hand her my application, there was a blizzard in New York and everything shut down, okay, everything. And somehow I have these visions of myself like trudging through the snow to her apartment and managing to get her my CV. And I was like, if I don't get the job, 
I mean, even though she knew me, I need to go through a formal process. And I was like, if I don't get the job, at least it makes for a good narrative of me like trudging through the snow of New York and going through the thing. Um, happily, I got the job. And it was really very special. Our job as an office, there are about four of us. And the role of the office really was to mine um, the New York creative community for material to develop into future films. So whether that be a great journalist writing a piece for Vanity Fair, um, someone writing a play, a book, um, what have you. And our office produced some, some great stuff. I mean, we found the article that then turned into this movie called The Insider um, with Russell Crowe. We found the material for Coyote Ugly. Um, we then ended up doing some work with ABC, um, which was also owned by Disney. And it was really, um, it was great. And again, it was really honing in on the pitch. So you find a wonderful piece of material. How do you sell it in? How do you mm -hmm. get it made? Mm -hmm. um, what's going to resonate with, with the studio? Uh, and it was fantastic. And that job taught me a number of things beyond that. Um, the second one, which I think to this day I hold very, very dear, is what the experience of working in a satellite office. And so if you're not in headquarters, and Disney headquarters are clearly not in New York, um, mm -hmm. or motion, the motion picture headquarters, you know, what does it take to work outside of HQ? You have to be really tenacious, um, really um, persistent. You need to be a self-starter, super proactive. Um, and if you're waiting always for direction from HQ, you're gonna find yourself a little bit lost. And so that was really helpful to me, but then also now, you know, in running a global business where we have offices outside of HQ, knowing what to look for in terms of skill set yes. and the people that are really going to flourish in, in that kind of environment. And it's interesting because those skills are not dissimilar to what's been needed recently in the pandemic where everyone's working remotely, you know, and, and the businesses weren't set up for that remote working. And it just, it took mm. everyone adapting and pivoting and being able to have that satellite office type of mentality. Um, so it's about this time that you discover your inner entrepreneur and you pursue a startup venture. Yes. So I am... Um... After several years at Disney, I was really at the crossroads, which was, you know, to further my career, I'd either have to stay in New York and find another business to work for um, or go to California. And one of the things, as much as I loved development, um, the piece around it that I found less satisfying was you would package up a film, you find an idea, the studio would buy in, you work, you find out who the producer, the director, et cetera. Um, but then you didn't get to work on it. It was just really, it was really more of, I guess, a business development role in some, in some ways. And you didn't really see the project through. And that planted a seed for me in terms of what would I like next at some point. So while I was at said crossroads, um, I met a guy who had started a web agency and the web agency was focused on working with entertainment, lifestyle and fashion companies to develop their web strategy. And whether that be for branding, marketing purposes or you know, e-commerce um, in a more full-fledged way. I have to say at that time, I was an absolute digital Luddite. Um, as the bubble was like heaving and like almost about to burst around me and thought, you know what, this is super interesting. Um, he has an entertainment client. He also was really eager to get someone who came from an entertainment background because he had a big entertainment client that he needed to man with someone from that universe. And I took the jump. Um, and my role there was um, on a business development um, team. Um, working with other existing clients to sort of further develop their digital strategy, also bringing in new business as well. Um, 
again, I guess similar to Saatchi, it was an absolute jump where it was almost a new language for me, um, a new way of working. And it was, all, it was the first time also I was surrounded by people who were younger than me and, and more senior, right? Because they had started off, they were, I guess, as digitally native as you could be at that time. So that was just interesting in terms of the profile of a, of a working um, dynamic. Um, I learned fast. I was super curious. Um, I loved having a number of different clients. Um, one of the clients who I worked with was Hearst International, um, who had an office. They were actually then called the National Magazine Company, uh, but they had an office in London, which you can see where this is um, where this is going. Um, so we had this fledged office in London. Um, and having lived abroad while I was at university, my dream was, you know, hmm, one day if I could ever live abroad again and work there, even just for a period of time, it would be great. Um, so having worked on terrific projects with Hearst in, in the US, and we actually, on a different note, we had pitched and won the very first Ralph Lauren site, polo.com, and worked on a host of other projects, I put my hand up and said, you know, can I go and help out the London, small London team? The CEO said, okay, you can go, yes, but you go for six months and then you come back. So I said, okay. So I whacked my stuff into storage, um, flew to London and never came back. But <laughs> little, did, no, no, little, did, little did I know, little did I know. I mean, when I, when I, um, when I set sail, so to speak, um, you know, I, the writing was kind of on the wall for the agency in that the bubble, the internet bubble was sort of bursting. Um, it was, there was quite a bit of overhead in, in the business, just in terms of the offices, the way the offices were decorated. And it was that sort of typical digital agency, you know, free snacks for everyone. There's amazing air on chairs, great lighting, beautiful artwork, huge yes. fish tank, right? Yeah. So I come over to London, which was not set up like that. But um, after a few months, there were, you know, I got the call saying, listen, um, I don't think we're gonna be able to keep London open. So why don't you come back to, um, come back to New York? And I remember just feeling this pit in my stomach and thinking, I'm not done. I loved being here. Um, I loved, um, and what I loved about it beyond the fact that I love London is I think, you know, having grown up in New York and worked in New York, I knew it so well. And I wasn't challenged in what I felt was the right way anymore. Mm. And sometimes uprooting yourself and starting again. And even though, yes, logistically, there's all kinds of headaches and things, it just puts a spring in your step and you do things that you would never otherwise do. You know, of yeah. course, you still keep all your old friends, but you have to make a new social network. And what does that look like? And it just requires energy, but in so doing, it also creates a whole new kind of energy. And yeah. I just thought, I'm, I'm not done. And uh, the guy who'd been running the UK office said, you know what, I'm going to buy the business, the UK business. You stick around. I don't know how long you want to work here, but like, I will keep you legally working here. You just have to keep your clients. Mm -hmm. um, namely, you know, at that point, it was Hearst and another smaller, you know, just, just, keep them on board and um, then we can talk about how you want to develop and end. So I'm forever grateful to him. Um, I stayed on yeah. and um, you know, what I mentioned earlier on in terms of business development and then at Disney and not seeing a product, product, you know, project through, what I realized is, you know, I'd spent a good deal of my career working in some way in client service. Mm -hmm. um, and what I longed to do was to work on a brand, you know, to go in-house somewhere. That's really, and I suppose at that point, a penny sort of started to drop in terms of, hmm, maybe your interest in things, fashion or clothing or retail, maybe you could do something with this if you went brand side.
and start to really focus your energies there yeah yeah and I, I totally understand what you mean I've I've recently decided to kind of juggle my life between Dubai and London and it mm. does it gives you a new energy you have to find new people you have to network and build those relationships and you have to kind of adapt to the the new lifestyle requirements and what business is like so how would you characterize UK business culture versus that of the USA I would say now they feel quite similar now um, when I arrived in London, they felt quite different and they felt different in the following way. There seemed to be a much greater work-life balance here in London. Um, you know, working in New York, the experience was, I'll give you an example. You know, if you were working on a project and someone on the project was going on holiday or vacation, um, one, they didn't have much vacation, so they probably wouldn't be gone very long. But two, um, you know, the dialogue would be something around, oh gosh, you know, I've got vacation coming up. I don't have to go, or I'm going to cancel my vacation. I'm going to work. I'm really sorry. Blah, blah, blah. I remember working on a pitch to a client when I first arrived in London. And one of the people on the creative team said, okay, yeah, here's where I am. Um, I'm on holiday from tomorrow. So so-and-so is going to work on it. And I remember it being shocked initially and thinking like wait what do you mean so it's like you're not going to follow it through and then thinking well hang on that's actually cool like you know that's refreshing that there's it's going to get done yeah um one there's a spirit of kind of teamwork and sharing and things and then also like great um what i have found over the years is that i think that the ways of working have become more and more similar and i think you know particularly now when both sides of the pond have experienced you know what we've experienced over the past 18 mm -hmm. months and i think you know one of the things you hear from everyone is just this remote working is relentless right and how that's why you know whatever your views are on going back to the office or not there's no question that some form of hybrid working is healthier right yes of course yeah. in some in some ways in some way shape or form some believe that once a person becomes an entrepreneur, it's ordinarily a lasting life change. But you were different. You decided to go in that direction of going in-house, as you mentioned, working for LVMH's shirt brand, Thomas Pink. So tell me a bit more about that experience, what you liked about that brand in particular. So I think, you know, it's funny, you mentioned entrepreneur. I wouldn't describe myself as an entrepreneur. I think I'm someone, I've had the privilege of working with amazing entrepreneurs. Um, I think I have a really strong entrepreneurial spirit, um, which probably lends me well to working with an entrepreneur in an entrepreneurial environment, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Um, but so going from that entrepreneurial environment then to a big established um, you know, global luxury player, how it came about. So when I left the digital, or when I was thinking about leaving the digital agency and I really cast my net very, very wide. Um, I'm a big believer in, um, in networking and asking questions and, just talking to as many people as humanly possible. Um, and I was introduced through like a friend of a friend of a friend um, to a woman who was running at that point what was called the fashion group at LVMH. And I was sharing what I had done um, on the digital side, what my, where my passions were, what I had studied, um, you know, what I'd done in terms of um, customer proposition, marketing, et cetera. And we talked, we had a great conversation. And then she said, you know what, if ever anything opened up at Thomas Pink, which they had recently acquired, a few years before, would you be interested? I said, gosh, you know, absolutely. I didn't know a huge amount about the brand at all. Um, I didn't, you know, I wasn't that I aspired to work in the men's shirt making business, but I just thought how cool, it's a retail business. It's pretty catalog focused, based here in London, like interesting. 
she introduced me um, to a guy who had come from Louis Vuitton within the group. He had been running Louis Vuitton for Europe and he was brought over to run Thomas Pink and, and evolve the brand. And I guess in some ways shake things up and to grow and develop. Um, he and I remain friends to this day and I will never forget the interview that we had because it was, I remember walking out and calling um, my husband and saying, actually it wasn't my husband at the time, calling my almost husband and saying, that was either really great or horrendous. Um, and I remember sitting there with my, and he had gone, first of all, he sat down, he went through my TV and he said, okay, tell me what you did. Da -da. And then essentially the message was why on God's great earth should I even be talking to you? Um, he then got down to that section where you talk about your skills and um, I had French and Italian as languages. And he starts, he was, he is French. So he starts speaking French to me, which is fine. And then he starts speaking Italian. And I was like, huh. So I remember saying to him, like, are you testing me? And he said, yeah. He said, I recently met someone right on their CV. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, good thing. Good thing I'm <laughs> honest. Um, so that was interesting. So always be ready for whatever you write on your CV. Um, important, important lesson. Um, but I remember him looking through and he said, okay, this is like really crazy of me. Um, I need to bring someone in as a sort of retail sales director. And even though you're uniquely not qualified to do this job, I'm going to take a punt on you. That was in a sort of a later meeting. And I just remember thinking, okay, brutally honest, totally true. I somehow was part, you know, parlaying why my experience was relevant. And again, I'm a really big believer in, the, in that. And I think, you know, I do not have a linear career, but I think that it's interesting. You know, I think it's interesting to try a number, and I'm not suggesting that my career is interesting, but I think following a non-linear path you, know, you learn so many different things that can almost always be in some way harnessed and packaged to where you want to end up, right? Mm -hmm. And so in my case, it was marketing, it was selling, it was how do you bring a product to market? How do you interest the ultimate buyer in what it is you're trying to sell, et cetera. Um, so I joined Pink as sales director. One of the first things I did was um, evolve what had been a catalog business into e-com and we um, moved all the sales to the website. We um, did branding exercise. We opened stores in China and Thailand and the US. We closed stores. We changed ad campaign. It was great. It was really great fun. Um, and also I was lucky enough to also participate in some LVMH um, training where I got to know people at the other brands. And it was super fun. And my dream was always, well, one day I'd love to do all this for a product that I was even more passionate about, um, but I was really quite happy. I went on maternity leave with my, um, my first child and sort of towards the end of my maternity leave when I was thinking about going back to work, uh, I got a call from a headhunter who I'd known for a long time who wanted just to catch up. And I knew that she had Net-A-Porte as a client. Um, I had been following Net-A-Porte. The first thing I actually have to this day, the first thing I ever bought on Net-A-Porte. I remember at the time, the launch of the brand was announced on this daily newsletter called Daily Candy. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, that sounds like the coolest thing in the entire world. And just running on and like scraping down my pennies and buying something. And it was incredibly exciting. Um, so she and I spoke for ages, the headhunter. And then at the end of it, she said, you know, would you ever be interested in, you know, looking at Net-A-Porte? Would you ever be interested in meeting um, Natalie, the founder? And I said, oh my gosh, yes. And like, jumped off the sofa um, with excitement. And the timing was pretty great because at that point, you know, Net-A-Porter was newer, it wasn't brand new, mm -hmm. but you know, that the, the company was really forming a, a management team. 
Um, and, you know, we got on incredibly well. I love the business. And it was an opportunity to join as um, vice president of sales and marketing. Because um, I should also add, while I was at Pink, my role expanded. I'd been sort of running sales probably for about a year and a half. And then I took on the marketing as well, okay. which explains why I was doing all the branding and everything mm -hmm. else. Um, and so that was over 14 years ago. It's kind of um, crazy to think it's been, it's been that long. And it has just been the most um, really exciting and rewarding and challenging, but in a stimulating way, um, ride. Wow, what an incredible journey all the way to Netta Forte. I love that. Um, and that brings us uh, really well onto uh, section three, a progressive future. So tell me about your final piece of music, Cold Heart by Dua Lipa and Elton John. When I first heard this song, my sister, um, who I'm very close with, who lives in, in California, um, and so the, due to the time difference, you know, I often get texted her when I'm up really early and she's about to go to bed. And I remember when this song first came out and she sent me um, the link because um, we, we have very similar taste in music. And I literally couldn't stop listening to it. And then I played it for my husband who couldn't stop listening to it. And then basically it got stuck in our head for like, in fact, I think it's still in my head now. I mean, it's like, I, that, it's like follows me wherever I go um, and always puts me in a really good mood. So that's why, I mean, every time I try and get it out of my head, it doesn't work. So even in just mentioning it, it pops in, which is why I start to laugh. But for me, I think it is just, it's such a feel good, uh, it's such a feel good song. Uh, love Dua Lipa, love Elton John. I just, I think it's great. And I think particularly after the year and a half that we've all had and challenges that we still you know, face around the world, having moments of escapism and just pure sort of elation um, that music can bring about is really important. So can we talk about Natalie Massonet for a moment? What was she like to work for and how would you characterize her achievements? She was fantastic um, to work for. I think um, really um, an amazing visionary, um, always a step ahead. Um, achievements, I think probably too plentiful to mention um, here, but really was a very uh, supportive, uh, inspiring, encouraging leader, I think, who combines um, clarity, uh, vision, um, strong views on the future, also with just warmth and created a culture here. Um, that's incredible, you know, and was really incredible. And, you know, I think working here has always felt like, um, yes, it's work as we were touching on earlier, but we, you know, we describe it sort of as our fashion family. Um, that also extends beyond the walls of Net-A-Porter. And we think of our fashion family in terms of the customers we serve and mm -hmm. the brands that we work with, um, et cetera. But a really, really special place. And I remember, you know, joining the business and the sort of unflagging customer centricity that ran through everything and everyone's passion in, in the product. And, you know, I always laugh and say, we're so lucky that we work inside a focus group, right? Because I walk mm. up from my desk and I can see all these people engaging in fashion in some way. And I'm not saying they're all buying from Net-A-Porter or Mr. Deportier out now, but everyone is sort of having this dialogue about fashion. And I think one of the things, you know, I really believe in, in the sort of transformative power of fashion. It's not gonna, you know, of course, it's not gonna solve um, problems and it's not gonna necessarily mm -hmm. change the world. But I think this idea around, you know, fashion can be very empowering and it can also be 
bring you moments of joy and be a mood booster and um, mm. can be a wonderful distraction, but also can set you up for your day. You know, if you're walking into an important presentation, important meeting, and you're wearing something that makes you feel fantastic, you know, you might sit differently, you present differently. Whereas on the flip side, if you walk out of the house and you think, oh gosh, or doesn't feel quite right, eek, um, it maybe takes a bit of the wind out of yourself. During that time, did you acknowledge Net-A-Porter was the vanguard for a new type of business online? You know, I think it's the least, um, you know, we really, it's what, this business is one of the least complacent um, companies or businesses I've come across, which doesn't mean that we're sort of self-flagellating the whole time, um, but really just that, you know, we celebrate success, but then we look and see, okay, what more can we do? Could we do? How, what could we, what could we do better? Um, you know, I think in the very, very early days, and this comes back to, you know, how, um, you know, Natalie's an incredible visionary, you know, no one thought this was possible. You know, so the fact that, you know, even up until somewhat recent years, we were still knocking on doors and saying, and trying to sort of pitch the benefit, again, coming back to pitching, um, pitch the benefit of why brands should be online or why an industry should be online. We knew we were doing something different. I think, you know, it probably took a while before we then sort of looked up and thought, wow, hang on. You know, I think there were just milestones in the business that you hit. You're like, oh gosh, wow. Mm. You know, I remember when we made, when we um, processed our millionth order, right? And you're like, whoa, I guess we really, whoa, have built something, <laughs> you know, or when we would have holiday parties or outings as a whole business and you look around and you're like, gosh, there are a lot of people working <laughs> You know, here and this is yeah. this is amazing. We've really built we built something, but we've never rested on our laurels. Not like <laughs> we're a leader of the pack. We're great. Never, never. Because okay. there's still so much to do. And were you working for the brand when it was sold by uh, Richmond and then bought back by Richmond? Could you explain the logic behind that? Oh, I can explain to you the, the very brief narrative. And I think it also goes some way to sort of explain, you know, how someone like me who is, I don't sit still very easily. I love to be involved in lots of different things. You know, had you said to me 15 years ago, you're going to work for the same company for over 14 years. I would have said, um, thanks for thinking of me. I don't think you're talking to the right person because what do you mean? Um, and what I mean by that is with change of the business, you know, there's been huge evolution. So in a way, I feel like I've worked for lots of different businesses, but under mm. the same fashionable roof. Um, so Richemont had been an investor of the business since the very, very early days. Um, they took a majority stake in us in 2010. Um, then there was a decision to um, merge us with Ukes, um, the Italian e-commerce player in 2015. And at that point we became Ukes Net-A-Porter. Um, and then in 2018, Richemont bought back the combined entities so we became um, part of Richemont. And, you know, what it has meant um, is that, of course, internally structures evolve and, and change. Um, my role has evolved because I went from, you know, the early days running marketing and sales for um, Net-A-Porter. And during that time, we also launched the Outnet, which I was very involved with, and then later Mr. Porter. Um, in 2015, I ran um, Net-A-Porter and Mr. Porter because the configuration of the company changed um, and then went on to run Net-A-Porter, Mr. Porter and the Outnet. So it's really meant just a sort of a structural um, evolution. But in terms of, you know, consumer proposition, the change of ownership structure, you know, it would just mean that we're bigger. Um, so hopefully we're faster. Hopefully, you know, the service mm. gets better and better, um, but actually the heart of the business, our mission, our focus on the customer, choosing the most amazing product, delivering it to you seamlessly, bringing it to life through beautiful content, that all remains the same. 
you know, but it allows our ge you know geographical footprint to also get bigger. Um, so we're able to localize in places like China or in France or in Germany sure. or in the US or what have you. In many ways, the, the last 20 months um, has been quite ideal for online with the lockdowns uh, handing this business a lucrative captive audience. During the same 20 months, we saw the heinous killing of George Floyd. As an American, was there any extra resonance for you? There was a great deal of resonance. I don't know if, um, I don't know, I can't say if it's because I'm American or just that I have a pulse, right? You know, I feel I can remember exactly where I was. I was outside of London, you know, and we were all in this, you know, there was so much going on. And I remember hearing this and I felt this just, it just hit me in, in the gut. And again, I'd like to say I was shocked, mm -hmm. um, but because it's so unfortunately, it was not an isolated incident. Um, of course, I was shocked, but shocked in thinking, how could this continue to happen as opposed to how could this ever happen in the first place? Um, which was equally bad. And the one thing I remember being struck by was, actually there were two things. One was, okay, this has happened before. How can this happen? How can this happen again and again? Um, but this is gonna be a catalyst. This is just gonna be mm. a catalyst for, for something's gonna happen. Something's got to happen. And then I took it further. And really for me, it was, what can you do, right? Okay, I'm a party of one and I work in, in an industry, you know, I work in a fashion tech industry, but what, can, what changes can I make? Um, what could I do? What could we do um, as a company to, to help, to help change, help drive the change? And so it was less in my head about how dare this happen? What are they? It was, okay, what are they? But then what are we and how can mm. I? And I just, gosh, I can, yeah. I, rem I remember exactly where I was sitting. I remember where I read the news. I mean, I remember everything as if it were, as if it were yesterday. Yeah. And I think this is, um, you know, it's become a, a seminal moment where lots of brands started looking at their ESG and uh, CSR strategies. What, what changes did the group undertake as a result, if any? A lot, essentially. Mm. You know, on the positive side, we had a lot of um, programs and a lot of initiatives in place. I think what this horrific incident did was really flipped a switch in terms of accelerating. Um, so specifically, um, when it comes to sort of our teams and internally, um, we have a DNI council. Um, I chair it. Um, we developed our ERGs, which our employer resource groups, which hadn't existed um, prior, who've been really fantastic in driving change throughout the organization. Um, we had, from a marketing perspective and as a branding perspective, had regular audits just in terms of who we're we working with, whether that's stylists, photographers, but also in terms of talent. What's the talent that we're representing? If we're using models, are we really, um, are we working with underrepresented groups? Are we too um, homogeneous? What do we need to do? That work had been underway and actually in pretty good progress, but it really, really accelerated. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that was initiated, initiated was unconscious bias training. Um, which really started with the executive committee. I mean, I was one of the first people uh, to get trained and I found it one of the most valuable things that, um, that I've done. And the reason behind that was, you know, I was sort of walked in thinking like, okay, I'm evolved, you know, I'm broad-minded. I've grown up and like, you know, surrounded by all different kinds of people from all different kinds of backgrounds. And okay, let's see. But what you realize with unconscious bias mm. is there are decisions that you might 
make or be tempted to make or ideas that would float into your head that you might think are okay, but actually they're not, mm. they're not. And that has been phenomenal. We were rolling it out. I think we're almost completed rollout across the whole business. Um, from a talent and recruitment standpoint, they have a bespoke um, unconscious bias program because you can imagine in that arena, it's incredibly important. Mm -hmm. um, further to that, you know, we've launched um, mentorship programs. We've launched um, initiatives to really encourage people who may not otherwise get the chance to have um, you know, a point of entry into our business and that's why you know programs that we had in place like the vanguard where we work with emerging talent or mr porter future that's renetta porte and mr porter future is doing a similar thing on mr porter um you know it really offers an opportunity to people who wouldn't necessarily have a facile way of getting into the industry or getting seen or getting their collections sure. looked at it offers a way in which has really mm -hmm. been fantastic so what i would say is you know there have been a number of great initiatives in place, um, we're still at the beginning of our journey. Mm -hmm. You know, our, the beginning of our journey happily didn't start 18 months mm -hmm. ago. It mm. accelerated 18 months ago, but we still have a ways to go, all of us. Absolutely. Uh, you know, boardroom representation at the moment for the black C-suite executives uh, is especially challenging. With zero representation in the FTSE 100. Is this something that the Net-a-Porter group are addressing or working on? Absolutely working on, I think just diversity across the board in terms mm -hmm. of senior leadership. If you look at the fashion industry overall, it can be misleading, right? So you look at the fashion colleges and you'd say, okay, students quite diverse, they're underrepresented groups, not enough of them, but there's lots of women, there's a lot, you know, okay. And then you sort of, you look at the fashion industry overall and it looks in terms of women diverse, in terms of underrepresented mm -hmm. groups, not nearly diverse. Mm -hmm as diverse as it should be. But then when you move your way to C-suite, where you realize that the bulk of the you know, senior roles are taken, I was about to say manned by, but that would be repetitive, taken by and manned by um, white men, right? Mm. In terms of our business, you know, diversity at senior levels is something that we are working really hard to, to address um, really across all underrepresented groups. So I would say similar to our journey, there's terrific work that's been done um, but it's still a work in progress. Absolutely. And I think uh, one of the things that's um, interesting is the need for resource, right? Resource is necessary to drive change. And I know that brands like uh, PVH that own Tommy Hilfiger and Calvin Klein have made allocations to assist Black-led social justice organizations. Uh, they put about five million aside for, for social justice reform. Is this something, is, is that a, a net supporter stance? Are, are you looking at putting resource into that? type of area yeah we're absolutely i mean we're absolutely looking to um really harness our leadership position to address social reform absolutely mm -hmm. i mean because i think for us you know we we feel a responsibility um again and coming back to that sort of turning point moment right 20 odd months ago of what can we do what can we do to affect change how can we use um you know our leadership position to make the world a more inclusive place we take that mm. incredibly seriously mm. to drive uh, social change in a major way would Nessa Porte sign the BBI charter I was waiting for that um, <laughs> listen I think I mean the BBI the BBI charter um, 
from my, you know, my understanding of it is super interesting and resonates with a lot of the work that we're doing. You know, what I'd say is we'd love to find out a little bit more and we'd love to consider it. So finally, we ask all of our podcast guests to make a pledge for the DNI space that they can deliver. What is your pledge? My pledge is to continue finding and nurturing talent that the system has historically excluded and really therefore to help creativity to flourish in our industry. And that is a phenomenal pledge. And I genuinely look forward to seeing that become a reality. So thank you so much, Alison, for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Um, and I'm sure our listeners will absolutely enjoy and love this fascinating conversation. So thank you again. Well, thank you so much for having me and to listeners. Thank you for listening. Um, it's, been, it's been great. Please join us next time on the BBI's You're On Mute, where we hear from another icon, business leader or famous personality. Until then, please subscribe, review and leave your feedback wherever you get your podcasts. If you're a leader and would like to share your journey and opinion on social justice and a fair society, please email us on podcast at blackbusinessinstitute.com. Until next time, goodbye. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.